Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Chad, great to be able to um, catch up with you and get your thoughts. Um, you know, when we look at the market, it, it continues to hit new highs. Uh, I don't know how much conviction is behind that because there's a lot of different pieces and moving parts that are causing investors to have some concern, like valuations, like the Delta variant, like the growing amount of debt. Um, so why don't we kind of just start top down and then we'll get into more of the nitty gritty in terms of how you and your team um, manage $8 billion, how we you know what kind of aspects and factors you think are important. But starting with top down, what's your view these days? Uh, so uh, our perspective, my partner, Kevin Karanen and I with uh, Matthew Batapaglia, we we take a big uh, long-term viewpoint uh, using uh, 10-year forecasted returns uh, when, in different asset classes. And it is not a surprise to say from a historical perspective, our 10-year outlook is one of which we're looking at a lower return environment, not only within equities, but of course with fixed income. Uh, with that said, uh, we have been overweight equity exposure uh, within our tactical asset allocation strategies uh, since April of last year. Uh, we do believe that the markets, though, uh, are limited uh, based off of valuation uh, and several other uh, concerns that, that we have uh, at, this, at this point in, in the market cycle. Hmm. And so when you are looking to invest today, and I know you've written some very detailed research about this, about um, owning quality. And a lot of people say, I own quality, but then we don't dig deeper in terms of understanding what that really means and kind of the discipline to figure out what is quality and what's not. And that's a, a really recent report that you did. And, you know, obviously there's decades of experience behind that, uh, but maybe drill down into some of the aspects that people can think about. You know, when you hear the word quality, everyone has a different another definition for quality, which could be quite maddening. Uh, my colleague Kevin Karan did a detailed report about quality investing. And what we did was we tried to clearly define exactly where and what we're looking for from an investment universe. Uh, and our and our view of quality are companies that do not have a lot of debt on their balance sheet. Uh, and we also like companies that are consistent and durable, meaning that their earnings are very predictable. And even in times of recessions, they may actually have perhaps negative earnings growth, but rather they're still earning money. Uh, that's, that's very important. Also, companies that are reinvesting back into their business to grow their business. And when they're reinvesting back into their business, that reinvestment is quite, uh, has a, quite a high return on, on invested capital. Uh, that is quite attractive to us. So there are other components that we, that we use to define quality, but growing profitable, well-capitalized, 
is really the the, the uh, hallmark of, of how we, we look at companies. And um, within the report, it was quite fascinating in terms of figuring out which companies were high quality versus ones that were not and their equity price performance. What, what did you find? Well, uh, over the last six months, you've had this amazing rise in lower quality companies that have gone parabolic in regard to their performance. A uh, couple of reasoning, reasons for that could be that, you know, perhaps there's more of a speculative fervor within the market. Two, many of the lower quality names have or may have junk bond type of ratings to them. Uh, so, of course, when the Federal Reserve is providing ample amount of liquidity uh, and you see credit spreads narrow, that in itself could provide a great, uh, a great um, uh, 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 po a positive tailwind for lower quality names with, that, are, that have a lot of debt. Uh, so basically what you could see happening is that as credit spreads are so narrow from a historical perspective, that has given that great push to these equity prices. But as you start to see a normalization, perhaps in, in, in high yield debt, in those type of names, perhaps if you start to see deceleration of the global economy and the US economy, that there will be a normalization within high quality and low quality from a price performance perspective. Well, and that's what's difficult sometimes, you know, to stick to your netting and, and only have high quality. And then you see some low quality companies have these parabolic rises. I mean, that's I mean, they can go the other way as well. But it's sometimes difficult. It's the fear of missing out for some people. Oh, the FOMO. Yeah, that, that fear of missing out. You can see it all over. And, and, you know, this is really the, you know, the watermark of a speculative market where you have potentially, you know, the SPAC market is very vibrant. Uh, I know it's rolled over a bit, but you have the credit markets where you know financial stress indexes are quite low. Uh, you have Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. You can see that this is this is building. Uh, so we're recommending to investors to you know take a step back, take a deep breath, look at high quality names that don't have a lot of debt that are very consistent and durable. This is more for long term investors, not traders. That that will perhaps be the best way to approach this type of a low return market environment, not only here, of course, but across the globe. So a couple of points I want to pick up on. Um, I want to get your take in terms of why you think we're going to be in a low return environment. But before we get to that, I do want you to explain to viewers what a credit spread is. We throw oh, those names around and not everybody knows. Okay, yes, and I, I my apologies. Uh, no. So credit spread, the way to look at it is you have a U.S. government bond. Let's take, for example, a 10-year treasury. And the 10-year treasury may be yielding 1.35%. And then you look, say, for example, at the high-yield bond index. That high-yield bond index, let's say, is yielding 4% or 5%. The difference between the two yields is what they call a credit spread. And historically, Many of these type of credit spreads uh, are quite wide. Today, they are historically narrow, not only within high yield bonds, but you could see it within U.S. municipal bonds, investment grade bonds, and whatnot. So what that is telling you is that investors are quite comfortable 
that default rates are going to be quite low over the next three to five years, and as well that the economy will be quite vibrant. Uh, but at one point, it becomes a little bit nonsensical where you have to say, am I getting paid well for taking on the risk? And that's where I, I, we believe that in certain asset classes, you have to be quite careful. Right. So um, the yield that you're getting on any investment really should reflect the associated risk. And with the high yield market, the high yield debt market, um, historically, you would be paid more than call it a 4% yield or maybe a 4% coupon or whatever it is. Maybe it should warrant, I don't know, historically, what would it be, 7 8%? Yeah, that's exactly where you should be. And I mean, in times when you have a real credit dislocation, high yield bonds move quite like similar to stocks. Maybe the correlations back before the massive QE programs was roughly about 70%. So you would buy a high yield bond and you would say, I'm getting paid well for taking on the, the, the risk, but I also understand that the asset class is quite volatile now uh, and has been for quite some time since Federal Reserve started their QE program in March, April of last year. Uh, things are very, very, uh, very tranquil and calm and rates have gone down considerably. So, you know, what that does to the equities of these high yield of these companies that have high yield jump on ratings is it really is kind of like rocket fuel, right? I mean, so you turn around and you say to yourself, oh, I can buy these stocks and they're going to not go out of business and things are going to be wonderful. And the stock market, the, the pricing of the stocks can become irrational. Our viewpoint is that investors should, again, just be very, very circumspect about and know about the past and just kind of not chase that type of. Yeah. And, and why is that, Chad? Because, you know, when we when I look at investments right now um, and one of the best ways, obviously, to make money is to is, is someone so simply put it, a very inordinately successful person said, buy low and sell high. I mean, it, it is sometimes just that simple. I mean, obviously, you got to get the right um, industry, sector, country, et cetera. But, um, you know, it's difficult for some people to do, right, to, to be disciplined to actually buy when, you know, things are attractive. But, but to your point about being in a low return environment and we've got high prices, I mean, how does that work out in, in the sense that uh, what's going to happen to some of these high price stocks if, in fact, we're in, if we're in a low return environment, it's, it's presumably because we've got a, a low, slow growth outlook. You're, yeah, you're, you're, well, you're in a low return environment for uh, one, let's, uh, we believe at Washington Crossing that uh, market speculators and investors have been what they call mispricing risk, okay? Um, risk, it doesn't come just, you know, slowly, but rather like last year, March of last year, all of a sudden you saw what exactly took place where you didn't have in your financial models this a certain scenario happened. It's almost like earthquake risk. You don't know when it's going to come, but it comes. And when it does, it could be could be uh, disastrous. So investors, you know, that are are investing in the financial system should just be aware that of that earthquake risk. It's very hard though to model that out. Um, there are two reasons why we believe that there is a you know there's concern regarding the low return environment. One, you have interest rates that are historically low. 
that you haven't had global interest rates like this low in over 4,000 years from a global perspective or 3,000 years since mm. finance because you, you, you never had interest rates where they were negative and they've been negative for quite some time across the globe in particular within Europe. Uh, two, uh, those interest rates being so low is what is the gravity, okay? You, when you have rates that go higher, then you're looking for a longer, you're looking for uh, a like more robust growth rate, okay? That type of growth rate, global growth rate, we're not seeing at this, at this inflection point. So that low interest rate environment is also one of the reasons why you have all asset classes across the globe uh, at historically high levels. If the interest rates were to normalize, then you would see a proper readjustment within valuations. And why do we think we're not going to get a strong global growth recovery? Because some people believe that we will. Mind you, I think Goldman Sachs actually just decreased their GDP outlook because of the Delta variant this morning. Um, I, you know, what, what do you think might be the right number? I mean, obviously, we've had easy year over year comparisons. That's going to change pretty soon. But what, what's your take in terms of productivity and growth? So our viewpoint is that uh, from a long-term, long-run perspective in the United States, that we could see about two and a half to two and three quarters percent GDP growth, which includes a quite vibrant uh, productivity number. Um, Europe, uh, the Europeans are going to be a little a step below that. We believe around one and a half percent or so. And of course, the emerging markets, which have been a major contributor of growth over the last 20 years, in particular China, that's where things are going to slow down quite a bit, uh, where you could see a sub 4% kind of GDP mm. growth level from there. So when you put it all together, your global growth trends, you know, are going to be quite vibrant here in the United States, but global growth across, uh, uh, you know, over the next several years, we believe it's going to be quite weighed down. In the short run, over the next 12 months, we do see the United States growing at a four plus percent handle. So that's above trend growth. Um, another thing though, that is really the, the major issue with uh, you know, our long-term forecast of return expectations that we started the conversation off with yeah. is valuation. Okay. You just have valuations that are from a, you know, from, from certain perspectives that it's just historically high when you look at it from a 10, 20 year kind of viewpoint. Uh, so from a starting point perspective, that also is weighing down. When it comes to interest rates and inflation, Catherine, you know, our viewpoint is that inflation is going to be above trend, but we're not particularly yet uh, positive that it's going to be white hot for the next three to five years. And that type of longer term viewpoint on, on inflation is what's going to be driving the long end of the curve. And so just to pick up on inflation, maybe being a bit elevated, but not really an issue is what I'm hearing from you. Let's go back to the U.S. jobs report that we saw last Friday, um, which was a disappointment in terms of the headline number. Wages increased. Participation stayed low. You know, is the potential read on that that um, the lower income uh, wage earner? is 
I don't want to see being priced out of the market, but they just don't, they don't have the skills that are matching the needs today. And we're going to continue to see this bifurcation going on um, in, in terms of the jobs picture and that there's going to be more people that really can't get back into the workforce. I wonder what that does, you know, to society, to taxes, to, to wages, um, any thoughts there? And, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because I, I do worry about stagflation. Right. That is, that is a concern that, you know, you have inflation growing, you know, rising at a 4%, 5% type of trajectory, and you have growth that, you know, eventually settles down to two, two and a half percent, creating that stagflation for three, four, five years out. Um, I, you know, right now, I believe that that, and we believe that that jobs number report that was disappointing is more COVID related uh, and that it may not very well be, you know, based off of that structural issue for this monthly jobs report. Uh, going forward, we do believe though that, that the economy will continue to be on the mend, but it'll be a fluid situation, Catherine, when mm. where COVID with different variants there are and reopening not only here in the United States, but across the globe. So our general viewpoint is that we could still see inflation again for the next 18 months running at a high level that the long end of the curve in the United States should continue to rise, but we are not generally concerned about that hype, that real in hard inflation concern that happened back in the 70s. We're not mm -hmm. seeing that yet. So where can the 10 year go over the next 18 months? Over 2% wouldn't be a shocker to us, okay? Uh, but that would just be a normal kind of occurrence with the normalization of the U.S. economy, which we do continue to believe will happen. It's just, you know, again, <laughs> asset prices are all based off of that that risk-free rate. Right. And um, and again, for viewers to understand that risk-free rate is the U.S. Treasury market. It's supposed to be the lowest risk out there. And therefore, that's what we base pricing off of. Absolutely right. Correct. Okay. Um, and, and the only reason why I bring up, you know, the jobs report and the, you know, the skill issue is, is I, I really, and it's a longer term, it's not really what we're necessarily talking about today, but, you know, if there are people who really can't get into the market on a higher paying job and those jobs are going away, being replaced by technology, you know, you really have to wonder um, if there is any type of stagflation, who it affects the most, really? I mean, you know, if you're not making a lot of money and you can't get into a job where you can and you've got rising prices personally, that's going to be a tough situation. I do worry about that. And I agree. I mean, that is, you know, the lower standard of living uh, based off of, you know, not having the educational skill gap there is a general long term concern that has been with the United States and across, you know, in particular over the last, you know, decade or two. Uh, so, you know, that too, you know, COVID has brought to, the, you know, the front and center that type of issue. Um, mm -hmm. But right now, the, the general concern in business is actually finding workers to actually do, you know, certain jobs. And what I'm finding is by talking to major business owners is they're having a very difficult time 
finding labor. Uh, and when they do find labor, they have to pay an excessive amount for that. And uh, so, so that is a concern that has not come to the forefront in regard to Wall Street, to earnings expectations. That mm. could be, you know, to your point about stagflation, uh, that, to, that could become a real issue where you have wage pressure, in particular on, on lower, on companies that, that, prov- that have lower incomes uh, uh, employees. That's an mm-hmm. issue that, that yeah. you have to look three to six months out on. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the way you phrased it. You know, it's a fluid situation and it really is. I mean, I was pretty optimistic. I always I'm, I am an optimist. Um, but, you know, heading into the fall, back to school, let's get back to business. And I think that is definitely the trend. And it, it's culturally, I think, what people want. At the same time, we do have this Delta variant um, that is rearing its ugly head once again. And I'm just wondering with you sitting in the States, give us a sense in terms of what it actually feels like there with the reopening trade. Are we a six out of 10? Like I thought maybe before we were 7.5 and we're moving to eight. So where are we in your perspective? I I probably, we're probably at a 7.5. And unfortunately you're seeing, you know, a pickup of, of mortality uh, rates, you know, on a daily basis due to COVID here in the United States. If you look at the seven-day average, it's a bit disturbing. Um, mm. And again, you know, there is concern about uh, not only the unvaccinated, but the vaccinated and boosters and whatnot. So that I think is giving some hesitancy for social mobility here in the United States a bit. Hence the reason why you're not seeing you know, as great of a uptake in regard to certain, you know, uh, jobs uh, being created. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, this is going to be one of the reasons why the United States GDP growth rate uh, and all particularly global growth rates will be marked down for Q3 and into Q4, uh, which I don't generally think is going to have a, a real hard uh uh, headwind for earnings growth here in the United States. But again, it's going to cause a little bit more hesitancy, uh, which could, of course, give a little bit more runway for the Federal Reserve in regard to what their actions are going to be going into the end of the year. And, you know, and that's really how I view it as well in terms of how long of a runway do we have for this bull market in the sense that because we've got the back and forth because of the COVID, you, it almost seems as though the Federal Reserve is going to have to continue to to really wait, even though I don't think that's the narrative, um, to pull back on quantitative easing, et cetera, that we almost have this, you know, perhaps incredibly elongated business cycle, um, a, a longer runway for for stocks. At the same time, though, we know valuations are high and, and it's and it's not a good reason why valuations could go higher because the Fed just because the Fed can't pull back. Right. It's not a high. It's not a high quality reason. So. Yeah, it, it, and and that's the thing. Even when they do curtail QE, and everyone will become a little bit excited about that. We're talking about fifteen or twenty billion dollars a month of you know scaling back their asset purchase program, uh, which is a drop in the bucket when you talk about the global fixed income market. Uh, so you know th- this th- th- this isn't this is just going to be another headwind going into 2022, um, we're not terribly bearish 
We're still, like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, we're overweight equity risk. We're just recommending to clients that as you see a deceleration of global growth, understand that business investment will continue to follow through um, because of you know, just the general need of consumption. Uh, we are, again, thinking that you know, we can get a good return, but you just got to be in the right types of, of investments going mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that um, in terms of being overweight equity, wanting quality, recognizing that valuations are high, um, the situation is fluid. Where do you want to be specifically overweight within equities? A good question. Uh, so uh, our viewpoint is you want to look at some companies that are rising dividend type of companies. The, the different sectors that one can look at is healthcare, which has underperformed drastically, uh, consumer staples which have been in the short run and intermediate term, been hurt by costs of goods going higher, pinching their, uh, their profit margins. We think that there's a good opportunity there as well. And mm. some certain select uh, consumer discretionary names uh, that we think are also quite attractive. Mm. So those have really been, well, healthcare as well as consumer staples, um, more out of favor lately. I forget which company it was that I just saw a report on Friday, but they had quite a bit of margin pressure. Right. Why won't that continue to grow? And, and therefore, will the valuations be pressured? And is there a better buying opportunity or would you actually get in now? So we would slowly scale into consumer staple companies. We think that, that over the course of the next six, nine, 12 months, uh, they will be readjusting their prices higher, talking about inflation, stagflation, like we were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, and that over that transitory period of them repricing their, their products higher, you'll start to see a roll-off of inflationary pressures as you start to slowly see normalization regarding the labor force and regarding commodity prices. Uh, so, one could just sit, you know, everyone knows that when you go to the supermarket, they never lower the prices. They're always increasing the prices or keep, keeping them the same. So as you start to see a roll off of these costs, we could see some margin improvement, perhaps in the back half of 2022, uh, which would bode well for many of these steady eddy names. Uh, so look no further as a company like Pepsi, for example, uh, that one is high quality, or look at a company like Hormel, who uh, last week uh, provided upbeat numbers, but yet did again, of course, say that pressures within margins were there and were pronounced, uh, but they have a steady management team that is looking long over the long run. Uh, so we, we would be favoring those type of names. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it was Hormel that I was looking at. <laughs> um, just kind of caught caught the glimpse of the numbers. Um, and within healthcare, because it hasn't performed, I mean, there's has been some, uh, have been some good companies, um, you know, personally went long Pfizer and Moderna earlier on, which was great. Um, but what has put pressure on healthcare in general? Um, and I also want to ask in terms of you getting exposure to healthcare, are you doing it through company specific names? Are you doing it through sector ETFs? How are you doing that? So within the healthcare, uh, we're going through individual names. 
on our rising dividend portfolio. Um, and as well, we're doing the sector play. You're using ETFs on our asset allocation strategies. So we have two strategies that we manage. When it comes to our rising dividend portfolio, we like companies like United Healthcare, uh, which we find to be a high quality name that has those, those watermarks that we spoke about earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. And we believe that over the long run, you can see an expansion of margins. As well, as we like uh, Pfizer and Merck. Uh, both companies have lower multiples. Uh, we believe that they have pipelines behind them that should do well. The reasoning behind it, healthcare uh, sector not doing as well as the broader markets is one, uh, because many of these healthcare companies actually uh, suffered when we went into lockdown mode. Um, but we believe that over the next three to five years that even with that type of headwind, they were quite profitable and valuations uh, are majorly uh, attractive in relationship to the broader markets. What, what's the average uh, for, the health, for healthcare in terms of the multiples versus the market multiple? The ones that we're looking at are you know, 16 or 17 times or, or below. Uh, and these, again, are steady eddy kind of names that, you know, are, you know, in, in relationship to a market multiple of 22 times. Uh, the growth yeah. rates are, are quite attractive at GDP plus growth rates. Yeah. And some of them obviously offer a dividend. Rising dividend. All three okay. of them I mentioned. Yes. Oh, really? Yep. Rising. Okay. Um, Chad, we're going to wrap it up here. But before we do, I just want to, uh, well, I guess I have two questions. One is... Um, you know, you, you, I mean, you've been in the business a long time, you and your partner, and you manage $8 billion, you know, being in the business a long time often makes some, you know, you, you've got experience, you're, you're calm. My point is you sound calm, so, which is always a good thing. Um, but what, what is, uh, you know, what is out there that might, you know, be of concern? Is it, is it the SPAC market? I was just reading this morning the number of IPOs and I think 60% of them are SPACs. Um, you know, it, 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 we talk about the Delta variant. We, we know that's out there, but what, is there something else that you're looking at or thinking about that concerns you? I think it's leverage. Uh, leverage that is unseen. Uh, the, uh, I may be saying it incorrectly, but the archipelago uh, uh, issue that they had to unwind trades uh, is a, a rude awakening. Um, I, I, we believe that you know, there are uh, certain pockets within the, the financial system that just we can't see the leverage. Also, the mispricing of risk. Um, you know, you, 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 like I said, a her, uh, you, know, you have tornado or hurricane risk or you know, earthquake risk. Uh, you could see that also there's a euphoria out there and I'm not saying that cryptocurrencies are not legitimate or legitimate, but you have this type of euphoria that's happening within certain parts of the market uh, that everything is an asset class from baseball cards to used bikes. Um, so there's, there's a little bit more speculative, a lot more speculative fervor than what, what I've seen uh, back in the past. Mm. And that, that to me has, has us, and I think our team, a little bit, you know, concern yeah. now, this can go on this can go on for another year two three years and that's the reason for preparing your portfolio today for that earthquake. 
Mm-hmm. And and when you talk about leverage that you can't see, my question, of course, was where do you think it is? And if you can't see it, how can you even a- answer that question? Um, but but you might have an idea in terms of where that might be. And I I always kind of have some concern about these pri- the private loan market. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Where, where do you think there might be leverage in the market that we can't see? You may have a family office or a variety of family offices or hedge funds that uh, have leverage within their book that um, is quite excessive. And that some of that leverage could be seen by the Federal Reserve. I'm concerned that many, much of the different esoteric financial instruments that are created by sophisticated trading houses uh, with sophisticated clients may not be properly priced. Uh, So that is a concern. I'm not talking about 2007, 2008, but again, you know, that is, is is an issue. And a lot of this comes from having interest rates well below the rate of inflation. Uh, And this type, that in itself, I think has created this type of uh, misbehavior. And again, it's not just the stock market or, you know, or the high yield market. I'm talking about just look no further as commercial real estate or residential real estate across the globe. Uh, you just have this general euphoria that just sometimes makes one just want to just hit the reset button and just yeah in high quality news. And just on that point, a stat of the day. Um, so there have been 698 IPOs so far this year in the United States. Of those, 417 are roughly 60% were SPACs. Um, and the IPO pipeline is heating up. And interestingly, as it relates to the number of unicorns out there, um, the number has grown from 12 just eight years ago to over 750 today. Right. So, you know, there's, you know, they cap, the capital markets are up and running, which is a positive thing for entrepreneurs. And that's, that's that there's some positive to that, but it's yeah. just a matter of what price you're willing to pay for that. Uh, that asset that, you know, has, has me a little bit uh, and our team a little bit questioning the broader environment. Okay. Um, Chad, we will wrap it up there for anybody who's interested in following up with you and your team. You obviously have a sales team, you've got products that you offer um, and really through financial advisors and or probably direct family offices. Uh, Just through financial advisors and you can check out our website. Thank you for mentioning that at WashingtonCrossingAdvisors.com. And uh, we will get back to you uh, as, as soon as possible. So thank you. Thank you for having yeah. me on, Catherine. I really Absolutely. Thank you. I think we've been speaking for maybe a decade or so. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Chad. We will see you and speak to you again soon. Thank you. Yeah.